<laughs> How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm... I had a piece in the New York Times, so it can't be too bad. Oh, well, that's always a good day when you hit the NYT. Very cool. That's all right. What 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 were they hollering about about you? So I wrote this. Um, it's an op-ed, and it's basically about how opioids are not just in your brain because of pain. They're mm -hmm. basically essential to our social connections to each other. And when you feel warm, safe, and loved by your family or other loved ones, that is an opioid feeling. And so it's not surprising when things are really messed up and stressful and chaotic or people who have histories of trauma to be very attracted to opioids because they give you that warmth, safety, and comfort that you don't get otherwise. And so the piece is sort of arguing that we should understand this and, you know, how sort of a little bit about the history of how when they first tried to um, introduce research in this area, people were kind of offended that mother love and heroin could be, you know, in the same sentence. Um, but, you know, when you think about it, really, this is really not generally about evil, selfish hedonists seeking to be more evil. No. Um, it is generally about people who feel outside um, and disconnected trying to feel okay. And when you see it that way, it's much more compassionate view than when you're like, oh, we just need to punish these people into submission. Yeah, yeah. And and we've known this for a minute. It's not like we we struck into new data gold. We, we've known this. And, and this has also been our story as well. It's my story. I, I, I didn't pursue drugs, particularly opioids, out, out of this hedonistic... Uh, desire, you know, to get high or escape, it gave, it gave me that, uh, that warmth and safety that, uh, that was kind of missing uh, at, at youth. And, um, but then, you know, cease, cease to function um, appropriately. And right, right. No, but it's just like, when you think about the picture of addiction, when you see it as, oh, these people are just kind of seeking love. Um, mm -hmm. It's very different than these are evil bad guys. Now there's some evil bad guys in like every group, but yeah. the you know the fact is that most people are just trying to be okay, and they aren't you know irredeemably antisocial or um, desiring to hurt their family. That's right. That's right. It's we don't talk about it enough. Why people use drugs? Well, exactly. Just... And I was surprised by the response to this piece because like a lot of people just didn't know this. Like this is a thing that I've known forever because like I'm interested in the area and I've written about neuroscience forever. Um, but it was really quite interesting because as it got edited, people were like, oh, these are other endorphins. I'm like, no, that's the point. It is actually the same system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've added it to my talks much more due to my, my um, working in public health much more than than my early career, which was strictly uh, treating substance use disorder and treating substance use, uh, but responding to overdose crisis on, on a, a team of, of, of diverse uh, disciplines, very much, uh, we talk much more about why people use drugs and, and yeah, why I mean, only a few of us experience chaos and only a, a fewer experience a diagnosable disorder. No, and I mean, it's, it's really, it's really sad because, you know, the drug war has just sort of pounded into our heads that, you know, anybody can get addicted and like mm -hmm. these substances themselves will like take over your brain. 
And that's just not what happens. And if we understand that and have compassion for why the people who get hooked do get hooked, it just will lead to much more effective and humane care for people. Indeed. Indeed. Well, tell us who you are. Ah, right. So yes, so I'm Maya Solovitz. I've written or co-written about eight books. Uh, my latest is, you can see over there, um, Undoing Drugs. Um, and it is the first history of the harm reduction movement. Right on. Right on. Yeah, I, uh, I take delight in your books and especially when sharing them with friends, I've done a couple book clubs and with diverse groups where some, some of us had to stretch and, but we wanted to stretch because we were directly involved with helping people to ease pain or find freedom and wellness. And, and um, I'm grateful that you're here. Uh, particularly Unbroken Brain was a trajectory changing book for myself and many of my fellows in recovery who ended up in the helping space, carrying uh, biases from our socialization. And you helped us stretch a lot. Well, it stretched me too, you know, because I started from that same place. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I at first was just like, you know, but because I personally knew how at risk for HIV I was when I was using mm -hmm. simply because somebody in harm reduction taught me to protect myself, I was always slightly more open to it than somebody who didn't have that background probably would have been. Um, but it's it just like in New York at that time, AIDS was such a nightmare crisis and there was no treatment and it was almost universally fatal. And people were like, oh, well, you know, they should die as an example to others. Mm. And it's like, really? First of all, who's going to see that? Are children really seeing people dying in AIDS wards? No, they are not. <laughs> Fortunately, mm. they are not. Um, but secondly, we just know that that doesn't work. And you shouldn't use people as instruments to send messages. You should be seeing each human being as a valued being with a spirit and a mind and um, a holiness for whatever, like, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. uh, word. <laughs> you, you do such a great job. The, uh, the vignette of your active substance use and this individual informing you, did you know that this is a way to catch HIV and here's how not to? And you were like, everybody needs to know this. I was just so outraged because I'm just like, really? Like, you're just going to not give us this information and let us die? And maybe our lovers and maybe our babies? Like, really? Mm. You no. know, I mean, I was obviously well aware of the drug war at that point. Um, but it's just like the inhumanity of that. And, you know, for me personally, who was like a smart kid, like being about to die of ignorance really pissed me off. So you, you are a former drug user. Do you identify as a person in recovery? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, my recovery has changed uh, over the years, um, but I certainly, you know, um, well, <laughs> I cannot safely use heroin or cocaine, I'll put it that way. Um, yeah. And I have to be careful um, if I do use other substances, which I do sometimes. Um, but I have been like always kind of watchful about that because, you know, it was just such a disaster. And I know that, you know, messing around with things that are not medically needed is a bad idea for me for the most part. Yeah. 
right on know yourself and uh i have similar experience in that uh i i, I have a sneaking suspicion that i could likely after 17 years of sustained growth and maturation and connection use some substances without chaos uh i, I choose not to at, at this moment but i do know there are lines particularly yeah. lines well, I, I that, <laughs> that i won't cross i made this with total abstinence for seven years yeah um right. you know and then what happened for me was around that time i discovered that my main or one of my main problems was that I was depressed mm -hmm. and when that was effectively treated I just didn't have that horrible clinging neediness that like made me just feel so terrible about myself and maybe not able to feel the love and the connections that I did actually have yeah. um it was just like I've always been a person who's had sort of various types of sensory and emotional overload and when I was able to turn the volume down on that with antidepressants or previously with heroin much more destructively, um, then I, you know, was sort of able to, um, you know, feel okay trying other things. But I have always felt like it's a really personal decision. And, you know, I don't want anybody to judge me. Um, and I don't want to judge anybody else based on that. I feel like, you know, recovery is about getting better. It's not about what substances are in your bloodstream. It is about, you know, working hard to be the best version of you that you can be. And, you know, everybody's going to mess up with that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, just seeing it as a sort of black and white, you're in recovery or you're not can be really dangerous. And I've seen people, you know, who were really respected in abstinence only situations who were just too ashamed to come back after that. Yeah. And that's really, that can be deadly. Um, so I feel very dedicated to having many paths and celebrating many paths of recovery, whether it's, you know, like harm reduction says, like any positive change um, as defined by that person. Uh, that's a very lax definition to some people because they're like, wait a minute, that means somebody in a needle exchange is in recovery. Well, they may well be. And that's good because once you're in the process, it is slow and, you know, it may take a while before you get out of the chaos, but the, you know, it's, you are engaging in a process of getting better, which I think is a good uh, way of defining recovery itself. And yeah, like, because if you just define it as total absence from everything continuously, then when people slip, it just becomes like, well, I just smoked a joint. So now I must shoot heroin because I already blew it. I no longer have my 10 years. I'll just, you know, and, and that's really, you know, harmful. I have, I have personally experienced that, uh, a period of abstinent recovery, uh, some stress in my life, some trauma in my life, experience a brief return to use. But because of the socialization in the environment, uh, I wonder what role that played as a self-fulfilling prophecy to, well, I guess you're going to rip and run for a couple of years now. And I don't know. I mean, and I think, you know, Alan Marlack called that the abstinence violation effect. And it, it's, I mean, I have this idea that nobody will ever actually do, but I think that um, in 12-step programs, it's fine to value continuous abstinence, but if you slip, let's say you have 10 years and you slip for one day, 
your 10 years doesn't go away. Let's say you get back after you do another 90 days. So because it didn't go away, you had those experiences, you were in that process, you're still in that process. And so like allowing that kind of a thing so that you're not always starting at square one with a relapse, which you aren't, like somebody who's been through it a million times is just different than somebody who's trying it for the first time. So I think expanding the definition of recovery allows us to bring in those people. And it doesn't mean that we don't have to value, we, it doesn't mean that we should value people who have been at it longer any less. Right, right. So uh, your definition of recovery, you've mentioned a, a, a multi-pathway, sometimes slow process of getting better and working towards becoming the best you. Some, that's what you mentioned is, is there? Yes. That's it. And I think, I mean, I think, I think that's as good a definition as any. Um, I I think that obviously better is subjective. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is better for some people may be different for other people. And there are also people whose pathways, because they have severe mental illness and severe trauma and maybe poverty or being without a home or any of these things, it's going to be a longer process often. And to sort of expect that somebody goes from this chaotic self-medication to perfect abstinence like immediately without returning to use ever is just ridiculous. And we don't expect that when people go on diets. We recognize that people are going to have a piece of cake every now and again, or maybe more often. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, that like, it's people change slowly, generally. Like we like this idea of the like lightning strike and suddenly you change completely. And it I makes think, a nice Hallmark movie. It does. And it's also <laughs> like, you know, it's sort of part of the new psychedelic story, which I'm a little nervous about because I do feel like psychedelics may be helpful for some people getting into recovery, but the idea that you have one experience and you're changed overnight and that's it, like that's a recipe for failure. Um, Some people it's going to happen for, but the majority of people, they're going to need time to change because it's just like, you know, I see your musical instruments in the background. And if you don't practice, you are not going to get any better. And also if you don't know technique, somebody beating you up for not knowing technique is not going to actually fix it because you don't know how to change. And so unless you have actual instruction in coping skills or playing whatever you're playing, um, you are probably not going to get it right immediately. In fact, there's almost nobody. I mean, I'm sure even the most famous guitars, the first time they played sound terrible Um, or horn players probably even worse. Worse. Um, but, (laughs) um, But, you know, it's, it's just, it's kind of, people don't think of it as a skill and they think like, oh, you know, you're just selfish or, um, you know, whatever, you know, taken over by a demon or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like, no, like, this is a thing that has made you feel okay for a very long time and you're used to turning to it to make you feel okay. And if you don't have enough other things to make you feel okay, then things will happen. Yeah, this uh, this concept, this concept of instant transformation, is I think born out of the moral theoretical model of substance use disorder, compounded by, you know, our most prevalent mutual aid society, Alcoholics Anonymous, which began with a white light experience that very few yeah. 
uh, actually attain. Uh, so, and I mean, they recognize that too. And I think the, you know, it's like, if you actually read the 12 step literature, it is not opposed to harm reduction. In fact, it says um, in the 12 and 12, you know, if you're not convinced, try some controlled drinking. And if it works, that's great. You solve the problem. And if it doesn't come back to us, because you probably need abstinence. Um, so, you know, it's, I don't understand, like, I do understand why people get so rigid about recovery because they feel like their life depends on what they believe about it. And if other people believe other things that can be threatening. But I think, you know, as long as you work very hard to figure out what your path is, then somebody else's path shouldn't threaten you. Like if somebody I know can like shoot heroin once a year and be fine with it, that's fine. I'm not risking that personally, especially in this environment. Um, I reserve the right when I'm like 89 or something, but um, <laughs> you know, uh, it is- just, It's not off um, the table. <laughs> you know, I mean, well, you know, uh, hopefully I will have no pain and I will not, you know, yeah. but if I, and I mean, I think I want to mention pain here actually, because we're doing a horrible, horrible thing to people in pain right now. A lot of people with chronic pain depend on opioids. They're not addicted, but they are dependent and they need them in order to function. And we're just cutting them off because addiction. Indeed. And it's like, you've been on for 20 years and now you're curled up in a ball, you know, and wanting to die. Mm -hmm. um, but because addiction, we have to take your drugs away. And that's just not fair. I feel like, especially guilty as a person with addiction, that the excuse of my existence is being used to like stomp on people in pain. So I'm very committed to you know people being able to have access to opioids if they need them whether for you know purposes of medication treatment with mm -hmm. methadone or um you know some places use heroin we should be doing that uh, some places use dilaudid we should be doing that um buprenorphine obviously um but i think you know just like ugh, the way we're treating pain patients is terrible and i want more attention to it because i think that you know, the way the situation is now, it sort of pits people with addiction against people in pain. And it's like, no, if nobody can be treated as a medical pariah, the way we currently treat addiction and the way we treat pain patients who we presume to be addicted, yep. if nobody gets treated that way, we all win. Yes. Yes. Chronic, chronic pain patients, people experiencing chronic pain have been victimized by this uh, what unfortunately policymakers, um, uh, media, and advocates coined the opioid epidemic so erroneously, and we're, we're my group is encouraging folks to say overdose crisis, which I like. I like. I prefer overdose crisis too, um, and I think understanding also that you know. Okay, so we've cut the medical supply like sixty percent since mm. two thousand eleven we've since doubled the overdose rate. This is obviously like stopping people's supply via one, you know, via the legal uh, medical supply is suddenly gonna cure people like of pain, of addiction, of both, like what? Like, why do we, why? I, I still, like, I still don't understand why we are allowed to shut down any pill mill without providing for the patients. Yeah. Like you're going to leave, like in, there's a situation going on, I think in Kentucky right now where a pain doctor who apparently had his own addiction got shut down. There's now 3000 patients who can't find doctors because well, the last guy got arrested. So I'm not going to mess with that patient. Um, and it's like, 
really, you didn't know that like shutting this practice down would leave all these people in withdrawal. You're not providing bridge prescriptions even like why, who is this helping? You know, we know we have data now showing that if you, um, you know, if you just cut people off, it doubles the risk of overdose death and quadruples the risk of suicide. So who's being helped? Nobody. Nobody. Yeah. I mean, I, I was complicit in this, uh, in, in my own state when, you know, data were showing that, uh, you know, recalcitrant prescribing was seemingly adding to uh, a rising overdose. But even when we came to the table to, to try and control prescribing uh, more, we there were folks at the table, our harm reduction and public health folk were like, you know what's going to happen when we do this. So what about that? And there was talk about throwing, you know, tens of millions of dollars into the budget to enhance this and that, which didn't really happen. They made the, um, you know, they, they, they made that uh, headline of we're, we're doing, we're doing the deal. We're controlling these, uh, prescribers. Well, no, and I mean, we've literally spent hundreds of millions of dollars, like monitoring people's prescriptions and their pets prescriptions. Yep. Um, <laughs> and like, we're not monitoring the fentanyl on the street because we can't because we're, we've created this situation where the supply is going to be poisoned with it because, you know, smaller things are easier to smuggle. So of course, it's going to trend towards more potency, not because of any evil, but because of the physical nature of the fact that smaller things are easy to smuggle. Yeah, right. Well, that was that was awesome. That was uh, some great discussion that I hope folks will listen closely to and, and take those questions and those uh, that outrage back to their circles. Also, I just want to say, like, I appreciate you saying that, you know, that you were complicit in this. We've all, you know, I, in my very um, early recovery, I wrote this big anti-methadone op-ed, which I've been atoning for ever since. Um, you know, it's like when we don't know something, you know, and, and this is what I, I think this is actually a really important lesson for um, advocates, which is to know what we don't know um, and to be aware that, like, what we've been told may not be and to just be constantly seeking out the science and people's lived experience and all of this stuff because just one piece by itself is not complete if you yeah. just go from your personal experience you may end up touting something that is actually harmful for other people um and if you just go by the science you are going to miss the nuances of, of why people do what they do um and you're not necessarily going to understand for example, you know, why, how opioids feel <laughs> for some people. And I, I should stress that, um, you know, it's only about a third of people who find opioids safe and comforting and warm. Like the rest of them are kind of like, either they have nausea or numbness or they just don't like it. Yep. Um, and so they're not even really at risk. Um, it's just the people who, um, who do like it and who have nothing else to live for really. And this is why the social parts of opioids and of addiction in general are, are so essential because we need to give people hope and give people connection and give people money. <laughs> you know, like, like three people with money and 10,000s of people with like zero money does not create a very nice society. And that's the equivalent of what we have right now. So trying to work out, you know, less inequality 
um, and more meaningful work and connection for people is, I think, really important. Oh, yeah, that's that strong work that will address not only mortality, but morbidity and um, connection, uh, purpose, uh, address inequity. And uh, yeah, we got our work cut out for us. But um, unfortunately, I know, I know. those, and I mean, those are complex, like, complex is, solutions. Is, yeah, transforming this is our the good thing about system. harm reduction, though, because it's like, um, you know, okay, are we going to like fix racism or give you a clean needle? We got to do both. But the fixing racism part is going to take a longer time. Yes. Um, and the fixing poverty part is going to take a longer time. But that doesn't mean that it's not essential to work towards minimizing the harm associated with inequality, ideally by reducing inequality. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, thank you. Um, usually, uh, my guests on here are folks you know, that I know, I've, 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 we've connected, we've taken some pictures together. You're a digital friend of mine that I've, <laughs> I've, you've, you've been so supremely accessible and uh, I've reached out, you know, as a neophyte and, uh, and then as a, an advocate and making change and, and, and I just appreciate you being, being there. No, thanks. No. And I mean, I, I feel also like, you know, um, I don't like it when activists say it's like not my job to educate you. Yes, it's your job to educate people because otherwise you're never going to make change. <laughs> and so I try to make it my job to educate anybody who wants to pay attention and who's just not going to be like, you know, mean to me. <laughs> and there's even sometimes people being mean to me, I'll put up with, but I really prefer not to. I really prefer to have an intellectual argument about things that are important based on the facts as best we can know them. Yeah. Educate people helps make change. Otherwise, you're just a grumpy old man on the porch yelling at kids. <laughs> no, no, exactly. And I mean, I certainly understand, like, it's different in situations where it's like you're asking, like, a Black person um, to constantly educate you about things. Like, that's dehumanizing in a yep. way. Um, and, and that's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm right. just talking about where... Um, you know, people in the addictions field just don't reach out and they don't, you know, engage and they don't sort of reckon with stuff that may contradict what they think. <laughs> and then folks uh, who have uh, come into a new awareness and have learned new things, uh, we need to learn to meet people where they are as we do the people we serve. Right. And that's like, that's so hard. That is so super hard. Like, Sometimes. yeah, well, I mean, I'm always like, I'm trying to convince people of things. And, you know, I, I'm not necessarily very good at meeting people where they are in terms of like, I want you to change now. I want to like, get you to like, you know, fix this now. Um, I get that that is not the way you're supposed to operate. And I, I try to like, you know, and I, it's cause it's really funny. Like on Twitter, I was like sort of confront people um, in a way that I find offensive when it's done in addiction treatment, <laughs> but you know, I don't know. Um, I think that obviously in a therapeutic setting it is different than Twitter. Thank God. I think, I think you, <laughs> I think you do a good job of it. I, I follow these, Twitter posts of yours where you, you just, you know, you're providing a, a different point of view to folks and supporting it with data and occasional, uh, you know, outrage, appropriate outrage. Yeah, I just like, it's like, if I could meet people where they are a bit better, I might be more effective, but it's just, I am working on it. 
Yeah, we're all working on it for sure. All right. So uh, what what do you do for fun? What kind of music do you like? Well, lately I'm listening to a ton of jazz um, and, you know, just really um, like all the way from the swing era and bag time and all that stuff to like bebop and kind of more abstract things. Um, I really love it. And I have been um, just uh, my husband and I, he got me into doing swing dancing. And so like that gives you a relationship with the rhythm of music that um, I previously didn't have. So it's, it's kind of cool because you can feel inside of it and you can understand things about the structure that you otherwise couldn't. Um, I was a deadhead and I still kind of am a deadhead. Yep. Um, and so that was a big part of my musical life for a very long time. I went to like a hundred shows and I was like, you know, really into the whole psychedelic thing of it. Um, and I really found some good connections there. You know, it was, it would have been better had I missed the cocaine part, but the, um, the community there was really um, helpful to me and I felt really connected to for a while. Um, you know, so, but so yeah, so like lately I just, you know, have um, Coltrane or um, Miles or like, you know, lots of this very classic stuff. Um, uh, and just, you know, I think uh, it's probably bad, but Pandora and Spotify both like have these things, you know, where they lead you in certain directions. Um, I want to pay musicians and I would like to, you know, whatever I can do, like we go out to your shows and, and stuff like that. But I just wish that the situation was set up better for for musicians to get paid from streaming stuff because there's certain songs that I've listened to so many times. If they were getting paid for that, I might be poor by now, but um, <laughs> but it would be better. <laughs> it's fact. Uh, when when I uh, I've been a musician my whole life, but when I finally got to the point where you know we were good enough to record and produce. I, you know, I naively was like, okay, we're going to sell a million albums. And they're like, dude, people aren't selling albums anymore. We're going to have to tour the world to make any money. And we were already in our, you know, forties. So. <laughs> ah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's a crazy situation for musicians now, I feel like. And I mean, just the pandemic has been yeah. awful. We've been, you know, just trying to like go out to shows as much as we can now yes. just because of that. Um, and it's nice to, um, you know, support specific musicians that you like. So, so going out to shows, uh, what else do you do for fun in, 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 in your life? Sometimes we say fun. In well, I'm not sure I would call it fun exactly, but I've got into like weightlifting lately. Um, and so I can actually deadlift 225 pounds, um, which is something I never thought I would ever think of to even try. Um, but, um, but, you know, it's, it's like, it's definitely getting me in better shape and it, it, you know, as a like small woman, it feels good to kind of have some power. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, and I have always realized, well, at least throughout my recovery, I've realized that exercise is really essential to my mental health. Um, and so whether it's cardio or doing weights or whatever, um, my philosophy on that is basically like, it's kind of the opposite of getting high in the sense of that the pain comes first and then, <laughs> and then the euphoria, whereas when you are like getting high, like you get the euphoria, but then you get the pain. And so it's much more motivating to get high, um, because you don't have to have the pain first usually. Um, so, you know, but with 
working out, like you can see just in terms of your mood being better and in terms of, um, you know, feeling stronger and physically better, um, you know, hopefully being at a healthy weight for you, whatever that may be. Um, and, you know, but it's, it's just like, it really, um, as a very geeky person who like, was like hell, gym class was my idea of hell. The fact that I voluntarily go to a gym sometimes still surprises me. Yeah, yeah. I feel you. I, I too was that geeky person, but I, I ended up joining the service and got thrust into, oh. into that. But I do enjoy the physical activity now. I, it's usually more, more sedate. It's long walks and, and bike rides and stuff. I also really dig food, though. We talked a little bit about cake. Uh, I don't know. Do you? Do you? Do you I'm a pioneer. Yeah, I love myself. food. I'm like you know. Um, I, I don't know. If I've been genetically lucky for most of my life, but now I have to be more careful about it. Um, but it's just yeah, sugar has always been a thing for me, mm. and I refuse to give it up entirely. I just feel like life is sweet. You know, I am enjoying that cake or cupcake or whatever. Um, I try to do that in moderation, um, but it's also like I'm a vegetarian, um, and fortunately for me, my husband cooks great vegetarian stuff, so, um, so that helps in just keeping um, a reasonably decent diet, um, but yeah, like definitely love my sugar. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I can't even claim to be an abstinent-based recovery because I know that the sugar that, that I consume and the caffeine that I consume um, is, is, is making me feel good. And, and I try to moderate because I don't want there to be chaos or excessive consequences. So yeah, I do drugs. I do pie. And no, well, exactly. And I think, you know, the more we understand this, the more compassionate we can be. And also the more we can see that the idea of total abstinence, yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, you could live a life where no carbs, no sugar, only vegetables, um, constant exercise, uh, you know, all of this. Um, and sexuality even. Right, yeah. abstention from everything. But that would be horrible. Um, <laughs> right. For me anyway. Um, I'm perfectly happy if that's what works for you. Um, yeah, but you do I don't believe you are a more pure person because I take Prozac and you don't. Yeah. Um, you know, I know that I was like wired differently from like the time I got wired in the first place in the womb. Um, I was always weird from like day zero. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's like people's baselines are different. And to assume, for example, that somebody who takes something to chill them out is going to be so chill that they will just not do anything. If you're already up here and you're going to here, that's healthier. Now, if you're down here and you're going down further, that's not. No. But different things are going to work for different people. And assuming that you are morally superior because you don't happen to need any of these things just pisses me off. <laughs> Yeah, this we, we we must avoid this this single template of recovery and uttering if I can do it, you can do it, and that just disregards the the differences we have psychologically and socially and racially and and um, hopefully we'll. I mean, I think I think there's a role for if I can do it, you can do it in the sense of giving people encouragement, mm. but 
if you do it the way that you were just talking about, no, that is very bad. Yeah. Um, I think, and I mean, I think this is actually one of the valuable things that people in recovery can bring because, you know, if you identify with me and you see that like, yeah, I was where you are now, um, that is powerful. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to say what worked for me is going to fix you um, or that, you know, I am going to say, do take heart that most people do get better. Um, and, you know, to give some ideas of what helped me. Um, it's been sort of really interesting talking to people lately um, about like discovering that they're on the autism spectrum or figuring out, um, you know, other psychological things that have been behind stuff that they did that they didn't understand because that can be really liberating, like just realizing, oh, there's other people who are weird in exactly the same way and this worked for them. So let's try this. Yeah. And you, you do a great job of that in, in your storytelling. I know you've created an empathic response in a lot of folks. And uh, I do remember the first time I learned about my diagnoses of co-occurring mental disorders, the role that played in diminishing my internalized stigma and, and my yeah. family forgiving me and me forgiving myself. And, and then you raising so much more awareness about not only co-occurring disorders, but disordered learning and, and neurodivergence is, is um, man, it's priceless. Yeah. And I mean, I think like, you know, I always got really annoyed with these researchers who are like, oh yeah, People drink and then they get depressed. And that's why it looks like people with uh, alcohol use disorder have depression. Uh, why would you do that? <laughs> like, really? Yeah. <laughs> that's why we wouldn't drink, right? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, it does something for you at the very, at least at first. Um, and, you know, yes, it might make your depression worse over time. That's fine. But like, to assume that somebody goes from like having a happy life to like, taking a ton of drugs in a very self-destructive way. It just doesn't make sense unless you believe the drugs are these like spiritual agents that like are, you know, taking over your brain somehow, which is ridiculous. That's just not how it works. I mean, no. this is why I also get very annoyed with the hijacked brain term because it's like in the sense that love hijacks your brain, um, addiction hijacks your brain. But that sense is not you becoming a zombie. It is you like doing things like doing everything you possibly can to make your children's life good because they're your children, <laughs> you know, or hiding an affair or whatever it may be. Um, people, you know, have motivation. They're not just like puppets on strings of drugs. Yeah, that is an entanglement of the hijacked brain uh, model is, is this assumption that uh, we've become zombies and removing the substance becomes a recovery of this whole and happy personhood. And, and that's rarely the case. No, no. And I mean, just like the other thing that that kind of encourages is the idea that, um, you know, first of all, if we're zombies that have no control, why wouldn't you lock us up? <laughs> um, but second of all, if we're zombies that have no control, there's no reason to give us naloxone or do needle exchange or anything like that. Um, you know, punishment is the only thing we're going to respond to in that ridiculous and false view. Yeah, ridiculous and false view. It may have come about for some as a well-intentioned 
uh, theory for some, maybe some backroom boys in the prison industrial complex may have supported it. I don't know. But the fact is, when we come up with a singular uh, explanation for substance use disorder, that's when we're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, no. And I would add, of course, to the fact that racism has driven a lot of our drug policy. Um, and if you look at it through that lens, it's very difficult to see anything useful in it. Um, you know, because it's just like, okay, our drug policy is like, let's lock up a lot of poor people. Um, let's lock up a lot of people of color. Um, the people we actually as a society care about, oh no, they get rehab. Uh, and like, no, that's not okay. Yeah, history will not be kind. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, another thing that I end up having folks do on, on this show, we talk about our, our experiences and our passions and our fun and everything is we, uh, we try to throw forward a message and kind of put you on the spot for, for, a, for a succinct uh, message for our millions of viewers. You know, what, what would that be? Ah, now this is throwing me. Um, right. But I think, <laughs> I think as you told me, I was going to be on the spot. Um, but I, I just really think that um, knowing that recovery is possible, that there are many different pathways to recovery, and that if one isn't working for you, there is almost certainly going to be another that will. And just not letting people shame you for something not working for you. If something isn't working for you, it's fine to try something else. And if you're in a rehab that is awful and treating you terribly, it is fine to leave and go somewhere that treats you humanely. That is not denial or any kind of bad thing. No one likes being treated like crap. Um, the fact that so much of our treatment does that, mm -hmm. and then we say, oh, well, we need to force people into treatment because otherwise they'd never do it. Well. How about making treatment attractive? <laughs> How about, you know, um, and yeah, just like recognizing that, you know, we all have these compulsive and addictive tendencies. Um, some of us, it's more extreme, others of us not, but this is part of the way our brains work. This is part of the way we learn in general. Uh, this is the reason we can feel these wonderful feelings of love and connection and all of that. So, be compassionate to people um, who may be having a hard time feeling that. Right on. I love it. I love it. If, uh, if this pathway is not working for you, there is most certainly another one that will. And uh, if you're being mistreated in treatment, that's, that's not cool. And you, you did a great job with that in your writings as well, of uh, calling out the, this, this paternalistic and abusive uh, treatment construct sometimes uh, where if someone complains about treatment, we just write them off. Uh, they should accept what they got and be grateful for it. And uh, that's empowering uh, for, for people to be able to speak up. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I think especially like I always say this to families that like, if you can ally yourself with the addicted person and say, look, we're going to get you better. Like it may take some time, you may, you know, it's a learning process so you're inevitably gonna screw up a little bit. But if something isn't working for you, I don't want you to be doing it either. Like I want you to have compassionate care that is helpful. And 
if that is not what you're getting, I'm not going to pay for it. <laughs> mm. Mm -mm -mm. Well, that was beautiful. Um, do you think there's anything that we missed? No, that was pretty wide ranging. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, gosh, it was a treat. Thank you so much. I can't wait to share this with the world. And, and I can't right. wait to, to just stay in touch with you as, as we all learn and grow and make change. Thank you very much. Bye.